us bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this privilege of being here this evening. Thank you for pulling us together as family, night after night, day after day, Father. We know that it's really just a grace gift from you to be here on an evening like this, to fellowship in your son's good name this way. May we never become familiar with it, Father. We pray for those in the congregation that can't be with us this evening. And we pray for those that are still lost in this world without hope. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your work, your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a time, a moment in time like this, a reality to rejoice in, Father. What a privilege, what an honor, what a gift. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, part 35. Here's where we are at in our primary passage. Go to Proverbs 17, verse 5. Let's just jump right in. Proverbs 17, verse 5. Going to finish this up this evening, unless the Spirit gets, uh, gets me off course for some other reason. Um, Proverbs 17, verse 5. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker, he who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. And so this idea of punishment triggered a closer look at sin itself. At sin itself. Not just even the activity of sin, but sin itself. Um, but also the results of living in sin uh, in the most extreme case, which is what we dubbed uh, the advanced unbeliever. Um, we followed that out to completion. We looked at what the Bible has to say about that vector, right? That polar end that's away from God, uh, advanced unbelief. And then the Spirit used this, again, this visual aid of polar ends, right? If that's way over there, then God is way over here. And he used this concept, this visual aid of polar ends to give us a scale, the effects of sin, but at scale. So he said, consider that way over there, and then consider that way over there. And between them, the reason, the chasm, the magnitude is the scale of the effect of sin itself. As far as away that is there, from there, that's the result of sin. And so sin is a massive issue. It's not even measurable, in effect. So we concluded that sin is the essential cause for this huge chasm between good and evil, light and darkness, etc., in other words, sin has a separating effect on those who are touched by it. It separates us from God. It separates us from holiness. And so sin has that immediate effect. And that's exactly what happened in the garden. It had that immediate effect, just like God said it would have. It had that immediate effect of separating us, man, from him. That's the effect of sin. And because he's perfectly holy, and sin is the opposite, there's an infinite chasm between the fallen creature and the holy God of the universe. And that's, that's that thing the Spirit wanted to impart to us was the, the, the size of it, the magnitude of the effects of sin. So again, for perspective's sake, if we think about Adam and the woman in the garden before the fall, where sin was not present in their lives yet, just think about that. Pre the fall, there's no division, no chasm, none of this to talk about, none of this big, big problem. Only light, only good, only life. 
Sin is the reason for spiritual and physical death, as we know from Holy Scripture. Without sin, there'd be no death in either sense, as we know it. There would be no death, as we know it, without sin. So concentrate on this a moment. It's this sin that causes enmity with God. Because as the Bible teaches us, God's eyes are too pure to look on it with any favor whatsoever. So God hates sin up here on the board. Habakkuk 1.13, the New American Standard. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Habakkuk 1.13. Again, your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. So that's God's perspective on sin, on evil, on wickedness. So the Bible tells us that God has no tolerance for sin. And since he is the source of all light and life, to be alienated from him is tantamount to being dead, spiritually speaking, to being in darkness. If he's the source of all light and life, to be alienated from him is to be in darkness, to be dead. That's the distinction. That's where sin comes in. That's why we call it spiritual death. It's really, by definition, separation from God. That's all spiritual death is. It just means being separated from him as a result of sin. In other words, sin causes a huge chasm between creator and creature because God can never look favorably upon sin, or the sinner, for that matter, or the sinner, for that matter, until, and here's the key word, until that sinner's sin is somehow atoned for. The penalty of it. And we'll get into this in a moment with sanctification again. A lot of really good feedback, by the way, on the, the bit of sanctification on Sunday. Um, it was just a, a nice, clean way to sort of articulate it in our souls without getting into you know, every last verse or exhaustively looking at it, just what is sanctification? And how does sin fit in this? And when, when the pastor talks about sanctification, um, positional, experiential, or ultimate sanctification, uh, which of those three Ps is he talking about, right? The penalty, the power, or the presence. And so it has everything to do with sin, though, right? And this huge chasm between creator and creature. Again, that exists until that sinner's sin is somehow atoned for. Since we're all born sinners, we're all born at enmity with God. And that right there, if you're just starting out, is sort of an aha moment. Wait a minute, I didn't know that. I thought a baby was just, you know, no, no, no. A baby's about as egocentric and sinful as they get. They're cute and cuddly, but they're born depraved. It's not its fault, but that's the fact of the matter. They're born, they're born critically flawed, as much as we love them. So we're all born sinners. We're all born at enmity with God. Since we cannot help but sin, I mean, that's our nature, the what we're born with, that's all we know, we have no possible hope. That's the whole point. We're born in this thing. We're born in this estate that's alienated from God. And therefore, we have no hope because all we want to do in that state, our very nature, we haven't been uh, born again yet. We haven't been given new apparatus yet to think and love God. So all we really know is love of self, which is why a little baby is literally the most self-loving creature you can find. Because that's why we call it egocentrism, right, in psychology. All it cares about is itself. Give me, you know, change my diaper, feed me, pick me up when I cry. You know, and I'm not saying these things are bad, but that's the nature of a baby, right? In that estate, this estate that we're born in, we have no possible hope of ever reconciling with God 
who is perfectly holy. He's perfectly holy. In that estate that we're born in, we have no hope on our own to reconcile with God. So knowing this, and being merciful to our situation, God graciously offered up his own son, Jesus Christ, to bear the burden of our penalty upon himself. That's the atonement. Again, that's how God solved the problem. So God has provided a way for the hopeless to be reconciled to himself, to restore friendly relations, right? Before the fall, everything was good. Sin came in, polar ends. Who can cross that chasm? Well, we just talked about the fact that we can't. We're not capable. So he has to cross the chasm. So Jesus came to us and made it possible for us. He atoned for sins, for all our sins, past, present, and future. So God has provided a way for the hopeless to be reconciled to himself. All it requires, and this is how it dovetails into our messages as of late, all it requires is a confession of faith in Christ Jesus. That's all it requires, is a simple confession. That's what's required. That's all he's looking for. A confession of faith in Christ Jesus. Now, let's read Paul's discourse on this very topic. And by the way, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Maybe it's not always presented this way because mm, maybe it's a little offensive. What do you mean uh, my little baby's a sinner? What do you mean I'm a, you know, I'm a sinner? I'm a pretty swell guy. That conversation tends to derail very early. But I'm giving you the gospel. This is just you know, my particular way on this particular night of stating the truth. And we call the gospel the good news. It's the good news. That's what gospel means. And this, this good news is that God has provided a way to reconcile us to himself through his son. Huge problem, insurmountable problem. We're way over there. He's way over there. How in the world am I going to get back to God? How am I going to be reconciled with the holy God of the universe who's perfect, who cannot look on sin with any favor whatsoever? And I'm a sinner. How do I get back to him? Through his son. Go to Romans 5, 6. Romans 5, verse 6. This is the good news. All you have to do is confess that it's true. To accept it as truth. Romans 5, verse 6. It's a beautiful thing, my friends. The gospel is the most beautiful thing. As we are truly born hopeless and helpless, and God found a way. Romans 5, 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Do you know how powerful that is? Think about that. You are ungodly, and he died for you. And remember, he was God in the flesh. No less God than God the Father. And he chose to die for you. And you were ungodly. It's not like you were a nice person. Do you understand? Right? We tend to do stuff. Think of it in our own brains, right? We tend to do stuff for people we like, right? Oh, what a sweet little girl. Here's a piece of candy. You're a brat. You get none. Isn't that fair? That's how we are. Right? When's the last time you said, what a brat? Here, here's a piece of candy. Right? What a, what a disgusting sinner. Here, let me save you. Here, let me come out of heaven. Let me humiliate myself in the first place and then let you mock and humiliate me to the death on a cross so I can save you, you ungodly cockroach. <laughs> right? That's the good news. Christ died for the ungodly. 
That's an amazing truth in the Word of God. Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Maybe you will, right? For someone righteous, you know what I'm saying? Maybe you give that person that little favor, show them a little grace, right? Charis in the original Greek, grace, show them favor. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How's that? Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, talking about Adam here, right? And so death spread to all men because all sinned. This is how we're born in sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come, but the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if... Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. That's what reconciliation looks like. That's what we're calling positional sanctification, coming back to him. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, obviously, we could spend a year on just that passage, but that's not our um, thought this evening. So just step back. The good news again. Think of it in big picture, the good news. We saw that we just read the fracture, right? There was a reference to, to Adam in the garden in the fall and how he alienated himself, and then Christ brings us back. Uh, the one sin separated us. The one sacrifice brings us all together. Um, so the good news is that God has provided a way to heal what man, through sin, caused in the garden. This fracture, this enmity with God. God found a way to cross this chasm up here on the board. And so when we start talking that way, we immediately think of the first phase of sanctification, right? Uh, actually, yeah, I'll get to it in a moment. The first phase of sanctification, which is positional sanctification. And this is, this is the crux of positional sanctification. That sin is the problem. We're born in sin. We're born separated from God. So sin is the problem. It's the reason. Christ is the solution. God sent his only son to die for us, to die for our sins. Confession, and this has been the principle we've been on as of late, confession is man's access to said solution. And when I say confession, I want you to use the exact definition that I've been giving you. It just means to say the same thing. Is Jesus who he said he was? Is there a problem? Am I a sinner? Do I need a Savior? Is Jesus who he said he was? 
There is? Yes. Do I accept that? Do I accept him as my Savior, my Lord and Savior? Yes. That's what it means to agree with God. That's the good news. You have to confess that you agree with him about your need for a Savior and that Jesus Christ is that Savior and that you need him personally. That's confession. That's the con confession of faith. You see? That's all God ever asks of us, a confession of faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So this most important of confessions is, again, really just saying the same thing God is saying about salvation. Essentially, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to the Father but through Him. That's all we're saying. That's basically the gospel. <laughs> I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I was born this way. I mean, I kind of prove it, too, because I sin all the time. Pretty much need a Savior. I'll never get back to God. I'll never reconcile myself to Him. I have to depend on some form of grace uh, given to me, extended to me. And that's, what Jesus, that's who Jesus Christ is. So I hope you see what God has sort of architected here. Um, the good news is that God is merciful enough to save us. All we have to do is, quote, you ready? Say the same thing. That's all salvation, that's all saving, salvation, positional sanctification is. It just means, I'm, gonna, I'm saying the same thing, Lord. You're my sovereign creator. I'm a sinner. You're perfect. I need a Savior. I need you to save me. That's the good news. The good news is, guess what? He did it for us. He became a man, died on the cross, bore the penalty of all our sins. Done. How's that for good news? All you have to do is agree with him. You have to agree with him. Now, here's the tricky part. I won't get into it, but you can't, you know what I'm saying, one foot in each pool. You can't agree with God and hold on to the old self like Jesus said. Let's not play any games. You've got to let go of that old thing and turn to me. We call that repentance. You've got to make a decision. It can't be lip service, in other words. That's the whole point. That's what it means to confess from the heart. Right? You don't just give lip service. But to net it all out, in the context of our messages, with the emphasis on confession, all we're really saying is the same thing as God is. That's it. Who found a way for you to reconcile back to him? He did. How did he do it? Jesus Christ. Where did he do it? On the cross. That's all you're saying. Who needs it? I do! Because <laughs> I'm a sinner! All we're saying is the same thing. See how easy the gospel is? That's all it is. Give people the facts. Let them say the same thing in their own good time. And maybe at the end of the day, they never say it, and they get sentenced to the lake of fire. But if you give them the facts, you see, you don't have to be um, a professional evangelist. You just got to tell them the truth. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that we're all born sinners. Okay? We're born like that. Have you ever sinned? You ever even told a little white lie? Well, guess what? Now you're a sinner. God can't even look upon that thing. How are you going to reconcile yourself with the holy God of the universe? You cannot. You need a Savior. Jesus Christ is the answer. He is the solution. Do you accept this? Is this something you're willing to confess? That's all confession is. Say the same thing. Confession is the way that leads us back to him. It's the, if you want to visualize it, it's the first, first step uh, forward to being uh, healed from the awful sting of uh, sin, of the sphere of sin, which is death itself. This is what brought up our little refresher course on sanctification on Sunday. Again, by definition, up here on the board, this is what sanctification is. It's very simple. It just means to be made holy, to be set apart for God's purposes. That's all sanctification is by definition. That's it. It just means to go towards him. He's perfectly holy. We are made holy. See? We are born just the opposite of this in sin, opposed to God's purposes. God's good intention is to fellowship with man 
And so he has a certain motivation that he discloses to us in the Bible. I want to fellowship with you. You're my creatures. I want to love you. I want you to be my children. In order to achieve this, though, we've got to be restored or reconciled to him. For he is holy, and we are born unholy. And as we started out in Habakkuk 1.13, he cannot look on sin with any favor. He can't have that, that alienation, that, that enmity between himself and the creature that's in his presence. And so he, he had to find a way to solve the problem. And all you're doing is saying, yep, thank you, Lord, because I wasn't going to do it. I cannot solve that problem. That's all confession is. And so this movement from enmity to reconciliation is what we call sanctification. So think about being sanctified as being moved from point A to point B. That's a good way to think about sanctification. It means movement from point A to point B, where point B is holiness. So there are three phases most theologians like to talk about up here on the board. Sanctification. Um, I don't like quippy things, so don't get crazy with this, with the three Ps. Oh, the three Ps. It's not a bad little way to remember it, so that you can remember it. But just know that the whole world doesn't talk about it this way necessarily. The concepts are there. Anyone who was doing their homework, the concepts are there. But don't get weird about the three Ps and stuff. Do you get what I'm getting at? Don't make it some hyper-doctrinalization. Someone comes up to you and says, it's not three Ps, it's something else, right? But the concepts are there. Oh, yeah, you're wrong. It's the three Ps. Don't do that. I've had enough of that in my life, right? Positional sanctification, saved from the penalty of sin. We just talked about that. Experiential sanctification, well, it was still left on earth. We're still left with this thing, right? Saved from the power of sin. As we mature in the faith, he sanctifies us. We go from immature believers to mature believers. See the movement? That's the movement. You're sanctified towards him. You become more and more like him. That's experiential. We call it experiential because it's something we experience in time. And then ultimate, that's what happens in heaven. Saved from the very presence of sin. No more sin. Nothing to deal with. We are completely, ultimately sanctified for his purposes. And that's it. That's the three phases of sanctification. Now, until you understand what sanctification is, there will be parts of the Bible that you might find, I don't know, a tad confusing. And that's okay. If you're new, or even if you've been at it for a while, and you're still read a passage, you're like, geez, I don't know if he's talking about uh, positional versus experiential. Trust me, it still happens to me. I still mull over certain passages and say, ooh, that's a toss-up a little bit there. Even after going to like the original language, and, and that's why you get these crazy theologians throwing tomatoes at each other, right? And fighting over stuff. And that's why we call it verbal plenary scripture, right? You, you, you think about the big picture. That's one of the great blessings I hope you realize you've gotten from this pulpit, is you see the big picture. There's no real need to argue about single instances where there might be some grayness in your brain or in someone else's brain, even a learned person's. You, you learn to abandon specific little things because it tends to be those little things, those little nuances that cults are born off of. People get crazy and they take one thing out of context and then they fight tooth and nail over it. Next thing you know, they get their own denomination and it's like cult and everything else and everybody else is a bunch of morons. And the reality is if you just elevate and you just realize what the problem statement is, that sin's the central issue and God found a way to reconcile you despite you, then the rest of it, you know what? It works out. It works out. Understand the basics like this stuff on the board, and you'll be a-okay. Trust me. Been there, done that. Been all the way down the rat hole. Fought a really, you know, fought some crazy fights. <laughs> Publicly, privately. You know what it did? Nothing. It just proved to me that nobody has it all down pat. And all it did was cause division in the body of Christ, which is really ugly. Really ugly. Now, again, you need to understand what sanctification is. But as you keep reading your Bible, there's going to be times you say, eh, you know, I might be a little confused. But just remember this to appear on the board, 1 Corinthians 14, 33. For God is not a God of confusion, 
but of peace. So this confusion, um, and I just intimated that I have it sometimes when I read my Bible, right? And I'm standing behind a pulpit. There's sometimes I read my Bible and I go, ooh, geez, that's going to require maybe a little extra work right now. Does it bother me to where I'm like, oh, just forget it. You know, and I turn a TV on that I don't have, right? But just, just forget it. No, I say, hey, there's something exciting for me to learn. Do I abandon my faith? No. Do I call somebody up and tell them they're a moron because they don't see what I see? Because they might not be confused? No. 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 But just know that God is not a God of confusion. So this confusion that I speak of simply is due to a, a lack of knowledge by you. Not because any of this is actually confusing. God's not confused at all about any of this. And we have to accept that. What I'm encouraging you all to do is spend some real time thinking about the concept of sanctification. You have to give that some thought. It's one of those fundamental things that really um, opens up the Bible to you when you read it, when you learn to read things in context, and that context dictates to you which of those three phases are in view, right? You might read something in Revelation. Oh, that's definitely ultimate sanctification. He's talking about, that's talking about things in the future. Right? You might read things, I don't know, uh, like in Romans where Paul's defending justification by faith. And he's talking all about positional sanctification. Are you or are you not justified? Or you might be in uh, Corinthians somewhere where it's experiential sanctification being talked about. Where Paul's, you know, handing out the rod, a couple of lickings with the rod to some off-kilter believers. And so the context dictates which one of those uh, phases that are in view. So if you understand what sanctification is, what I'm encouraging you to do is spend some time with it so that you really understand it, so that when you read your own Bible, um, you'll have a good idea of which phase of sanctification the writer is getting at. Because if you get it wrong, again, you can end up way in left field. And God will heal you if you pray on it. It's not a big deal. Uh, eventually, that's what I'm here for, right? That's why he puts up pulpits like this one that teach the truth so that you can actually learn uh, from somebody who's been studying it uh, for a good portion of their life, that kind of a thing. Um, but learn sanctification. I promise you, it'll help you tremendously in understanding your Bible whenever you read it. So with that said, let's take a step back now. We just looked at um, sin and confession specifically as a result of pondering this punishment that we opened up with in Proverbs 17.5. The doctrine of sanctification, which is why we just reviewed it, gives us perspective as well as the mechanics even on how God responds to confession. Up here in the board. This came out on Sunday. This is a paraphrase or a summary of what we learned there's always a positive result of confessing to God. Always. Confessing is what? Saying the same thing as God. No matter what the situation is, good, bad, or ugly, if you're, you know, <laughs> if you look really good or you look terrible, confessing whatever it is always results in a positive. There's always a positive result of confessing to God. As I've taught you in the past, confession is actually for you. God's not a taskmaster. All right, listen. God already knows everything. So if you think you're doing him any favors, if you think you're, you know, pleasing him because he didn't know, like, oh, thank you for telling me. <laughs> right? You're way off kilter. You're, you're applying, like, human viewpoint to God. God already knows everything. So if you know that one principle, you know that confession is actually not for him. It's for you. To say the same thing as God is to reconcile your thoughts with his. He doesn't need that. His thoughts are perfect. You need to reconcile your thoughts with him, with his. That's what confession is. So that your thoughts get adjusted. That's why he encourages it. It's not because he's a taskmaster. 
right? It's not a religious thing like, like some religions teach, which is just flat-out evil because it puts people in bondage, thinking God is some, you know, just has a whip out. He just wants to whip people, and he's just looking for ways that you, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. That's not it at all. Honestly, that's not it at all. Even the discipline, as we've learned, as harsh as it might be, is to orient you, your thinking, back to him. Sanctification, anyone? Experience that lately, anyone? That's what sanctification is. You're over here living in sin, and he says, how about you confess it so you can reorient to me? How about you move back towards me? Yeah. Because sin took you that way. But my grace and my mercy, my forgiveness, if you're willing to confess, take you this way. Hmm. God already knows everything, so confession is for you. So to confess, in, a, in the strictest sense, is to advance as a believer. Does that make sense? Even in a little microcosm of a day, or a moment. You were here, but now you're here. You were here disoriented, now you're here oriented. Does that make sense? So to confess is to advance as a believer. We might even say that confession equals taking steps towards spiritual maturity. Again, up here on the board, there's always a positive result of confessing to God. You should never be afraid or um, hesitant to confess to God um, because it's your peace that's at stake. Think about it this way. And by the way, we're still amplifying the value of confession here. That's the good work that the Spirit's doing with this congregation. He's saying, what is the value of confession, by the way? It doesn't matter if you're confessing a sin or a righteous deed. It doesn't matter. Or anything in between. It doesn't matter if you're confessing a sin or a righteous deed. In both cases, you're simply agreeing with God, which is orienting to Him, which is pleasing to Him. That's all confession is. So even if you're having, you know, to come clean about a sin, or maybe it's something even uh, more profound, stickier, more momentum, like you're living in sin. You know, this is a habitual thing that you, you are living in and you're having to come clean on that. God is pleased with your confession. That's the whole point. That's all he wants. He just wants you to say, Lord, I know. I know. I'm living in sin. And he says, good, I can work with that. I can't work with somebody who lies about it to my face when I already know. Because you're only lying to yourself. You're hurting yourself. So God is pleased with your confession. He already knows about your sinful behavior, your sinful thoughts, your sinful words. The idea is to get you to admit it to yourself with God as your witness. That's it. That's why you do it typically in prayer. That's what prayer is for. It's your, it's your nakedness time, right? It's your vulnerable, you know, it's your open, most open time because it's just you and Him and intimate fellowship. That's what prayer is for. It's probably why some people shy away from prayer because they're not, they don't like that nakedness, um, which, again, only thwarts sanctification itself. And so the idea is to get you to admit it to yourself with God as your witness. And that, my friends, is how you take a step in the positive direction of sanctification. That's how you become more holy. Remember by definition what sanctification is? To be made holy. So when you confess, you're being made more holy. So as we learned with David, if you refuse to confess... We all do it. And if you refuse to take this step of confession, you will be punished. 
You will be punished. And if you ignore his good counsel to confess, long enough anyways, you might end up the way David did up here on the board. Psalm 32, verse 3, For when I kept silent, you know, this is, all I can picture is David going like this. You know what I mean? Like, nope, not ready, nope. I know I'm living in sin. I know I just murdered someone. Uh, yep, a bunch of people are dying around me. Nope. Right? When he did that, his bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. So David had to come clean with God, which he certainly did eventually, being a man after God's own heart. And when he did, as we noted in the remainder of uh, Psalm 32, God restored his soul, his vitality, his peace, his contentment. And that's the pattern we've been noting in Holy Scripture. David's just a man. He was just a man, right? Was he special in the sense that he's remarked about in the Holy, in the Holy Bible? Yeah, oh yeah. His humility was profound. But he was just a man. Do you understand? So he set this pattern that we've been noting in Holy Scripture, which is why we spent some time in the Psalms, specifically 32 and 51. And both of those Psalms were penitential, uh, implying confession of sin and the value of confession, the restoring, the sanctifying effect of confession. As we read, uh, read those passages, um, the Spirit spent some real time with us Again, on the value of confession, that was the point. Do you see it? Do you see what happened when you cross your arms and pretend that you're not living in sin? Do you see what happens? You waste away. You're punished. Do you see the value of, of confessing your sin to God? You're restored. He forgives your sin. He moves you on. You grow up. You move forward. Um, you receive peace. Again, the Spirit spent some time with us on the value of confession, in particular, that it is meant to reorient us to the very mind of Christ, going back a few weeks now, a couple, two, three weeks ago. The very mind of Christ, which is the whole of the Bible. In a perfect world, we would agree with everything in here. That's never going to happen, not, on this, not in this lifetime. We'd like to, but it's not going to happen because we don't know everything in that book. Right? It's the very mind of Christ, but that's what it means. The value of confession is to reorient to the mind of Christ, or stated more practically, to the will of God, because those are one and the same. Christ's mind, the will of God, it's one and the same. The word of God, it's one and the same. As we just noted, confession always results in goodness. Always. However, now here's a disclaimer. Good... You ready? Good is something that God defines. Good is something that God defines, okay? So it may not always be pleasant <laughs> by our standards. Does that make sense? It may not be pleasant. In other words, you know how there's like, I don't know, maybe it's not this way with you, but um, there's always that little like a speed bump in the way. You're like here and it's, it's kind of how, you know, kind of how we live in sin. We kind of go up it. We're like, oh, this is, I don't know. I don't know. And let's go back over here. Right? And it takes there's a little speed bump. There's a little bump we, we got to get over to actually confess, especially when we're living in sin. And I think maybe the longer you've been living in the sin, the, the higher that first hump is. In other words, you just have to have, all right, we just got to do this thing. It's like ripping the Band-Aid off, right? But the Band-Aid's been there for like a year. It's like welded to your skin. You're like, oh, this is going to hurt. And it does. It really hurts. But once it's off, you know what I'm saying? No? Nobody? Big hump? Nobody? Okay, bad analogy. Moving right along. <laughs> the point is that God, uh, good is something that God defines. So... It may not always be pleasant by our own standards. For example, while it's unpleasant to be disciplined by God, it's a good thing. Right? When you, when you maybe have to reconcile, when you have to, not to use the same word, when you have to 
have a sort of come to Jesus about a sin, living in sin, it's going to hurt a little bit because you're going to have to realize certain things about yourself. And when you're in that intimate moment with him, he's going to reveal certain things to you. That's the hump, right? You'd like to just sort of like, okay, confess and I'm done, right? Can I just get to the other side? You just want to like jump over the hump? And he's like, no, 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 no. To protect you, to keep you from going back there, I need you to go through all of this with me. I need you to think this, 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 and this, and I want you to realize this, 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 and this about yourself. You have this, this, this weakness in you. It's why you keep living in that sin. We've got to talk about these things. It's not just this, you know, boom, we're done. It's let's, let's talk about this. Now that I've got your attention, now that you're willing to confess living in this sin, we need to talk about why. And it's usually some, something that keeps you in sin like that. It's never one thing. Right? I'm sure it wasn't that way with David, the whole Uriah Bathsheba thing. It wasn't just one thing. He, it was a com- what we would call a complex of sins. So he had to sit there and confess all of it to God. Why am I this? Why am I a, murdering, a murderous adulterer? How did I end up here? Well, let's talk about this. It's because you have this weakness, this weakness, this weakness, this weakness, this weakness. Do you agree with me? I do. Okay, now we can get over this. Now that you've oriented to my thinking on all of these things, we can press on. Okay, up here on the board. On that point, confession versus punishment. Confession of sin reorients one's thinking with God's. It reconciles our thoughts. Punishment is discipline meant to train us to not sin that way again. As we mature... As we are sanctified experientially, we realize that it's better to want to do what's right than to be forced to do it. Remember I used that push-pull analogy, right? It's better to want to do what's right than to be forced to do it. Paul wrote the Philippians to encourage them on this. Go to Philippians 1, verse 9. Philippians 1, verse 9. So you want to do the right thing. You want to confess whether it's good or bad, you want to confess. You want to always, your end goal is to say the same thing as God. And you say, but I don't know what that is. Well, what are you looking at right now? His word. There you got it. You want to know how to orient to him? There it is right in front of you. He said, read this book and I'll show you. There you go. So there's really no excuse when you think about it. Because God is patient, too. He doesn't expect you to know everything up front. Philippians 1.9, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more, in other words, increasing, with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. In other words, be sanctified, even experientially, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. In other words, bear good fruit. That's the pull method that I keep returning to. It's better for everyone involved that you want to be righteous, that you want to confess whatever God says is true. Up here on the board, when you confess it, you tend to be obedient. So obedience that follows confession, there's much greater glory to God if a person obeys him out of a desire to bring him glory than it is to obey out of a desire to simply avoid being disciplined. In other words, be, be, have, you know, be gravitated towards him, towards orienting, towards confession, to put it simply, right? The, the least common denominator here is just confess. Say the same thing as God. You want that thing. Why? Because that's what brings you peace, ultimately, and it brings him glory, right? If he keeps having to whack you back into shape, to wake you up. That's not as good. That's what the Bible teaches us. There's, not, there's much greater glory to God if a person obeys him out of a desire to bring him glory than it is to obey out of a desire to simply avoid being disciplined. So what we would call a more mature believer, they understand this implicitly. It's one of the hallmarks of a more mature believer. Um, 
and they embrace God's commandments, in other words. That's one of the telltale signs of a more, a more mature believer in Christ, is that they embrace God's commandments. No longer, they don't see them as strict rules, but rather guideposts for peaceful living. Is that fair? God's commandments become guideposts for peaceful living. For example, a mature believer will fully understand this point up here on the board. To live in sin is a choice. To refuse to confess that sin is to remain in it under the judgment and punishment that it incurs. Punishment for believers may be quantified minimally as a loss of peace. That's been one of the great revelations in this series as of late. Punishment for believers may be quantified minimally as a loss of peace. Your good conscience is not going to leave you alone. God the Holy Spirit is going to use that thing that he imparted to you at salvation to his glory. He's going to haunt you with it, in other words. And the more you have of this in your soul, the more haunting there will be. Right? So that's the double-edged sword. Hebrews 4, 12, right? That's the, that's the double-edged sword. And you have, if you have the word of God, to whom much is given, much is required. And that's all good, though. Why? Because it's more expeditious, even, to get you reoriented. Is that, did I just make sense there? In other words, it's more expedient um, to getting you back to oriented to his thinking if you have more of this in you. Does that make sense? I hope so. Punishment for believers may be quantified minimally as a loss of peace. And that has everything to do with that good conscience. As we noted in detail on Sunday, David isn't the only person whose lament is recorded in Holy Scripture. The prophet Jeremiah also suffered a loss of peace due to sin. So let's review that quickly. Go to Lamentations 3.15. Lamentations 3.15. So it wasn't just David. We have another good example. In Jeremiah, the prophet, he lost peace, right? And he, was, he lost peace as a result of his whole generation of Israel, his people being out of whack, being sinful against God. Lamentations 3.15. So just another example of lament, of loss of peace. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cover in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. Ouch, right? Ow. Yeah. Yeah. That's a painful description of what unconfessed sin can do to a person. But as we begin with this evening, God is merciful. Look at verse 31. Verse 31. 3.31. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of Men. In other words, confess and be restored. Get your peace back. Just say the same thing. And don't be weird and mechanical about it either. Well, I confessed it. Where's my peace? Oh, no, no. I think your heart might be off. It's not a protocol. It's not some mechanical thing that you do. That's not how it works. You don't get to put God on a treadmill. How about that? That's not how it works. That makes you a religious moron. And trust me, I've been there. Right? As many of you have. What the Bible teaches us is that confession leads to sanctification, which is tantamount to increased faith and therefore peace. And even if the discipline remains for a time, with this faith, we have victory over whatever pain and suffering we've caused, even to ourselves. Did you catch that? Let me say it again. With this faith, we have victory over whatever pain and suffering we've caused even to ourselves. 
You might say, well, God's never going to relieve this suffering because I did it to myself. That's wrong thinking. In other words, we can and will overcome all things through the power he gives us. He may not remove some of the scars. The fact that you hurt somebody else, that doesn't go away. You sinned against somebody. You might have emotionally, physically hurt somebody. That doesn't just magically go away because you confessed or you said the same thing about that situation to God. But he promises you will have the power to overcome that situation. Even though it was your fault, even though there's remnants of it in your life, maybe till the day you die. The good news is, go to Philippians 4.13. 4.13. He makes no distinction. Do you understand? He makes no distinction. He doesn't say, well, since you did it, since you were the primary culprit, I can't help you out. I want, I want you to focus on one three-letter word. It's the fourth one, if you're in the English Standard Version. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's the same in the NASB. Fourth word, three letters, what is it? All. To say some, say most, to say most accept the stuff that you're really responsible for? No. Philippians 4.13 says very clearly, I can do all things... All things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Do you see any disclaimers? Do you see a little asterisk there, by the way? And then down in the margin, there's something that says, except when it was really your fault. No, not even close. God doesn't operate like that. God is the God of grace and mercy. He just wants you to say the same thing. So you two can reconcile on some sin in your past. That's it. That's all he wants from you. And then he promises you, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That includes, with the requisite confession, of course, saying the same thing about that sin, that you can and will be able to overcome all of those haunting mistakes you've made in the past. Ta-da! Isn't that a beautiful thing? Let me say it again. That includes that you can and will be able to overcome all of those haunting mistakes you've made in the past. No disclaimers. Doesn't matter if you were the problem, you were part of the problem, you were part of a group that was the problem. Mm -mm. No distinction. What does it say in verse 13? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Any questions? All things. It may cause a little consternation to truly confess your sins, but you'll be better off for it in the end. Just remember, confessing to God isn't like confessing to another person. He already knows. So there's no you know, knee-jerk reaction like there often is with humans. You're like, I, cannot, I, can't, I can't admit that to them. They're going to flip out. God doesn't have that. He already knows. You understand? So that weird hesitance we have with, like, because we're trained up with dealing with other people who are going to flip out. You don't have that with God. He already knows. He just wants you to accept it, to admit it to yourself. Now, there's a little disclaimer here. For those of you who have a habit, and I understand it, I'm not throwing stones, of living a, a life in condemnation. Because maybe the Spirit was just talking to you when he said, yeah, even the stuff that you're responsible for. All of that is covered. You can overcome those things too. So the disclaimer is confessing sins doesn't mean living in condemnation as a result of doing it. In other words, you're bringing back into remembrance, ah, oh, crap, here we go again. That's not what this is about. Should you accept that you are guilty of them? Absolutely. But we believers are not called to live guilt-ridden lives that oppress us. In fact, as Jesus said, the truth will set you free. And I think I'll leave you with this. Jesus Christ said the truth will set you free. Amen? Okay. Well, 
isn't knowing yourself, including your own sins, the truth? Isn't it? To know oneself, including all the sins, that is within the body of truth. Amen? Confess that truth. And what did Jesus say? Be set free. Did you get it? It's the truth that sets you free. God is the source of all truth. He knows everything. He already knows. He just wants you to confess. Say the same thing so that you can be set free. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of studying your word because it is the word, this word of truth that does set us free, Father. We're so grateful to you for giving us these moments by grace, through love, so that we can be sanctified and set free this way. Father, we just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned here this evening back to the privacy of our own souls, back to our homes, and then your will be done out to the world, this world that just needs it so desperately, Father. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.